0: Welcome to another debate from Intelligence Squared US. I'm John Donvan and I will be moderating as the six people you see here on the stage with me at the Skirbel Center for the Performing Arts at New York University. We have two tables, six debaters, three against three. We'll be debating this motion, Buy American, higher American policies will backfire. And here to introduce at this point our debaters arguing for the motion that Buy American, higher American policies will backfire. Jagdish Bhagwati, University Professor of Economics and Law at Columbia University. (laughs) Douglas Irwin, Professor of Economics at Dartmouth College. (laughs) And Susan Schwab, former United States Trade Representative. (laughs) Arguing against the motion, we have Leo Girard, International President of the United Steelworkers. John R. MacArthur, President and Publisher of Harper's Magazine. (laughs) Jeff Madrick, Senior Fellow at the Schwartz Center for Economic Policy Analysis at the New School. (laughs) Now this this debate, this is a debate, so let's remind ourselves of what the stakes are. There will be winners and losers tonight. This is a contest. This is a, a contest of ideas and persuasion and perhaps wit and humor facts. Um, But you in the audience play a crucial role in this contest because you are the judges. We are polling you both before and after the debate to establish where you stand on our motion. Uh, We'll be reporting them in just uh, a little while once we've had the first results tabulated. But once again, to remind you, our motion is that by American, higher American policies will backfire. And we would like now to go to our vote uh, for the final time if any of the members of the audience still would like another chance to vote? If you put your hands up, I'll know that the answer to that is yes. And it looks like no, so everybody has, everybody has voted. So um, the results are being tabulated. We will have you a vote once again at the end of the debate and the side that has changed the most minds who has moved the largest percentage into their camp in the course of the evening will be declared uh, our winner. So let's get to the debate. Speaking for the motion first, um, I'm sorry, I thought I had something out of the order. Speaking for the motion first, Douglas Irwin, a professor at Dartmouth College, Free Trade Under Fire is the title of his latest book and those four words will tell us why he is here to argue for the motion that buy American, higher American policies will backfire. Douglas Irwin.
1: Well, I apologize if my voice is a little bit gravelly, but uh, I used up most of it yesterday when I achieved a childhood dream of seeing the Green Bay Packers play at Lambeau Field. And I learned, aside from the fact that Green Bay can lose a game, they're supposed to win, I learned that you can get very funny faces on people's uh, uh, faces when very funny looks on people's faces when uh, you amble up to them in Green Bay and say, "So, what do you think of them uh, Buy America provisions?" Doesn't uh, doesn't work so well. It's a real conversation stopper. <laughs> um, so what I'd like to do is uh, remind you of the proposition before you tonight, and that is whether Buy American provisions will backfire. In fact, they've already backfired. So you have little choice but to vote for the affirmative. First of all, what is Buy America? Buy American is a provision in federal legislation that mandates the purchase of US-made products in government contracts. Now, in some sense, who could be against Buy American? Uh, I want people to buy American products. I want a strong and healthy and vibrant American economy. I want uh, good jobs and good wages for American workers. I think we can all agree on those propositions. But that's not the issue. The debate here tonight is about the means to that laudable end. Uh, Buy America may sound like it's a good idea, but the more you think about it, it's actually counterproductive. Let me give you a specific example of what Buy America is. In the economic stimulus bill that we uh, talked about earlier, uh, John Donovan mentioned, uh, it was passed by Congress earlier this year. One section requires the use of American made steel in all stimulus related construction projects, unless it costs more than 25% above foreign suppliers. Now this is a good deal for the American steel industry but it's a bad deal for the rest of us. By raising the cost of construction projects, our nation can afford fewer of those projects. That means fewer jobs will be created with the limited amount of money we have to spend. If we have to pay a 25% premium for steel, that leaves less money for all the other projects. In fact, this is not a trivial matter. Picture in your mind for a moment the Bay Bridge in San Francisco. There's a lot of steel in that bridge. Uh, California had to repair the bridge a few years ago and the Buy America provisions were in force. The domestic steel bid came in at, guess what? 23% above the foreign bid. Now, why wasn't 24% above, I don't know. But that added $400 million to the cost to repair the bridge. That's almost half a billion dollars for one project. Now, what can you do with half a billion dollars? Instead of paying inflated prices for steel, you could repair roads, Build new bridges, build new schools, invest in green technology, provide health care for children, or even perhaps reduce the fiscal deficit that is literally bankrupting the state of California. But it's more than just paying more and getting less. The real problem is this. Buy America is a bad jobs creation program. Steel is very capital intensive. So when we increase production, we don't hire a lot of new workers. There are about 150,000 steel workers in the United States there are 7 million construction workers. There are 1.5 million unemployed construction workers. Construction is really labor intensive. So if we spend more taxpayer money on steel, we can afford fewer projects, construction projects, that will uh, employ more construction workers who really need the jobs. So why do we give US steel producers a 25% handicap against foreign suppliers and other bidders? Well, they were the only industry that was powerful enough to get it into law. It's corporate welfare, pure and simple. What percent of the steel made and sold in the United States is made in the United States? Seventy percent. They control 70 percent of the market and they want more and they want the taxpayer to pay for it. Buy America has already backfired because it creates bureaucratic red tape that has forced state and local governments to delay starting infrastructure projects and therefore uh, delay getting people back to work. In Perkins, Oklahoma, they're planning on building a new wastewater plant for $15 million. It was shovel ready. The government came in to give them another 1.5 million in free stimulus money, but it wasn't free. It came with Buy America and other uh, pieces of red tape, and it raised the cost of the project even more than the town would be getting from the federal government. So now the town has to go out and borrow more money to get the project going. And this is not an isolated example. Here's a news article from last week's Wall Street Journal, How Buy America Can Hurt U.S. Firms, uh, and it talks about how various ways in which U.S. firms cannot bid on municipal projects here in the United States because they may make components that are sent for final processing in Canada. They come back from Canada, uh, and it's called a Canadian project uh, product, even though a lot of the value added is made here in the United States, and that just doesn't make sense. Many people think that Buy America is aimed at China. Well, we aimed at China, but we hit Canada and now we're shooting ourselves in the foot. Canadian governments are boycotting US firms in their infrastructure projects and costing us jobs here in the United States. So in sum, buy America is not a good idea. It raises the cost of, uh, it sounds like a good idea, but it's not a good idea. It raises the cost of infrastructure projects. It pads the bottom line of the steel industry. It reduces the number of construction workers we can employ with our precious tax dollars. And when other countries employ their own buy local provisions, our exporters will be cut out of their lucrative market, those lucrative markets abroad, and will lose even more manufacturing jobs here in the United States. I'm sure you've heard of the saying, what's good for GM is good for America. Well, we know that's not true. And what's good for the steel industry, its workers and its executives, is not good for America either, necessarily. So buy America is uh, costly corporate welfare. It's already backfired. Please vote affirmative. Thank you very much.
0: Thank you, Douglas Irwin. And now to argue against the motion that Buy American, Higher American Policies will backfire, Leo Girard, who is the son of a miner from Canada, and now that he is International President of the United Steelworkers, when he steps up to that microphone, he has 850,000 union members standing behind him. Leo Girard. Thank you very much. I have to
2: seal that came from China Market share. This is this is what's coming from China to build market share. It's selling solar panels on the American market for less than the cost of the materials.
0: Joe Gerard, thank you very much. Um, I just want to make a request to uh, back on cell phones. If anybody still has their cell phone turned on as a result of the voting exercise to turn it off now, because uh, I've been told it might be interfering with, uh, the radio waves might be interfering with some of the audio in the room. So I'll just listen to everybody's phones sing for a second while that happens. And again, for newcomers, I want to explain that we have opening statements of seven minutes each. That will be followed by a round of head-to-head debate in which I'll ask questions and you'll ask questions. And at the end of the evening, we'll have summary statements of two minutes each, after which you will vote once again. Are all of the cell phones off? It looks like they are. Uh, So to resume... The the motion here is to buy American, the motion here is that buy American, higher American policies will backfire. And our next debater is going to argue in the affirmative. He thinks that buy American will backfire, not surprisingly, because he is one of the world's preeminent economists and has long argued that globalization is the world's most powerful force for social good. From Columbia University, Jagdish Bhagwati.
3: Let me just begin first by emphasizing a point which Doug Irwin made, but in relation to a story. Uh, When I was a student at Oxford, one of my professors actually uh, told me that he'd gone to Whitehall to advise, and he was surprised to find that while he thought economics oversimplified things, that in fact people in Whitehall were working with even more simplistic models. Uh, they usually thought X led to Y, and they stopped there. Y leading to Z, Z leading in turn to X. All of that was completely beyond them. They were ex- extremely oversimplified. The problem, I think, with Mr. Girard is, I think, as Doug was pointing out, uh, and with the, with the opposing side, basically, is that you think that Buy America will create jobs in the steel-using sectors, for example, uh, or in the steel industry. First impact, X effects Y, but what does that do to the rest of the system? Because you're then opening up a whole series of additional effects which are actually going to overwhelm the initial primary impact, and that's essentially what we need to focus on. What are these additional effects? One, of course, is that downstream industries typically become more uh, uncompetitive. We know when President Bush put on the steel tariffs in 92, the effect was in fact to price out a whole lot of steel using industries including autos which and there is a famous study which shows that about 200,000 jobs may have been lost while we gained a few uh, basically through protecting steel. So that's point number one. The second point is that you, you get out of this, uh, and still, even if we didn't have this problem, we would have the problem of retaliation. And I would say it's not tit for tat retaliation necessarily, it's also monkey see, monkey do kind of imitation. Uh, we do something, others do the same thing. If you look at the 1930s, it was exactly spreading and diffusion of all kinds of trade barriers, starting out from the smoot Holly, et cetera. And this, I think, led to essentially what we, in economics, call a nuclear winter, basically. There was a chaotic outbreak of all kinds of uh, trade barriers. That came home to roost, in turn, on our export performance, on everybody's export performance. And I think this is something we need to remember, that as we go into this policies like Buy America, that is what we are going to get into. We already see that, as Doug was pointing out, uh, in, in a variety of fields, and I'm sure Susan will pick up that theme, the large numbers of actual actions, which we already see by the you know, diffusion of these kinds of tariffs. And we are actually the biggest traders in the world. Uh, every state has export industries. Uh, I've been looking at that. You have basically, therefore, a lot of your jobs at stake and those are going to outweigh the few jobs you may save uh, in the, uh, through Buy America provisions. I think this is, if you look at Buy America and if you know a little bit of history, I know just a little bit, Doug knows much more, but Buy America, when did it first get passed in this country? It, it has to be in this country, obviously it was Buy America. Um, <laughs> the, <laughs> it was 1933, right after the um, the Depression, the Great Depression. And that's what set the stage. And I think we are now reenacting that after this current crisis. So beware, is all I say. Caveat emptor if you want to feel inclined to be voting for the other side. Then I think we also got the argument to, to, to look at the negative arguments produced by Mr. Gerard in his interesting comment. Uh, and he said, well, manufacturers are important and we need to support them. He's not the first one to have said that. There's been an anti-deindustrialization movement in in, in England uh, about 20 years ago. There was also a Berkeley movement called Manufacturing Matters, and I think Mr. Girard is really harking back to it. And this is a case where you assert that manufacturing has some sort of massive externalities. And I would simply say uh, that, I'll just quote my old teacher, Professor Solo is a Nobel laureate and father figure on the Democratic side, I'm a Democrat. Um, he said, I know there are lots of industries, massive externalities, but there's a $4 worth of marginal, social marginal product and the private marginal product is $1. $1. And he said, my problem is I don't know which ones they are. And the problem is, and compounded by the fact that the lobbies know where the externalities are. And I think this is the problem. It's not that we don't believe that there are externalities, but for Mr. Gerard to assume that they are necessarily in steel or in manufacturers more generally, it's never been proven. And I don't think any Democrat would, would support that view. In fact, what we do is essentially to argue that we must support broader policies like R&D support and so on, but not go into specific activities, because that's exactly the wrong way to go, and it gets captured by, by several people. Uh, and I think this is what we need to worry about. Finally, I would just touch on one thing which drives, I think, the union movement, and I, I, I can understand their fear, because I can easily produce models, uh, being, a, being a, a theorist also, aside from an activist on on, on these issues, um, one can easily produce models where international trade actually affects your workers. Uh, That in fact, the the, the fear is on the part of unions that trade with the poor countries produces poppers in the rich countries. Now a lot of work has been done on this. Actually, uh, there's very little evidence uh, of this. In fact, there are studies, including my own, Bob Lawrence at Harvard, which show actually that the pressure on our wages, which is a real problem, and you know, as a Democrat I'm entirely sympathetic to the problem, that has been brought about by extremely acute labor-saving technical change, by the fact that the unionization has also gone down for reasons which don't have much to do with, with, uh, with globalization or trade. Given that, I think a lot of us have argued with empirical evidence that trade with poor countries, trade with emerging countries, has actually kept the, the consumption cost of workers' wages down. So, it, in fact, it has moderated.
0: Jagdish Bhagwati, I'm sorry, your time is up.
3: So, I, I will pick up the argument later. <laughs>
0: I want to help, ask you to help with a little piece of radio production. At this point on the NPR broadcasts, they take a break, and then we come back again to the broadcast, and it's very helpful if, uh, if it's refreshed with a round of applause from all of you, so I'd like to ask you to do that. <clears throat> Welcome back to another debate from Intelligence Squared US. I'm John Donvan, your moderator. The proposition we are debating here is Buy American, Hire American policies will backfire. We have three pan- six panelists, three against three. And next to speak against the motion, Buy American, Hire American policies will backfire, John R. MacArthur, known as Rick, he is president and publisher of Harper's Magazine, the oldest continuously published monthly magazine in America and also one of the most progressive. Ladies and gentlemen, Rick MacArthur.
4: I have to uh, tell you that I wrote a book about NAFTA. called Selling of Free Trade. That's why I'm here, not because I'm a publisher of Harper's Magazine. But may I make a cheap debater's point by the outset (laughs) and (laughs) say that Professor Irwin has already geared off the proposition? Uh, This is the question I thought that that was put was by American policies, not the by American provision in the legislation that just passed. uh, and if we we're going to discuss it broadly, we have to talk about tariffs versus free trade, protectionism versus free trade. That's what we're really talking <coughs> about here. Uh, I would also add that uh, I hope we can come back to Sue Holly because food Hawley is a canard, kind of as is acknowledged by many, many mainstream economists uh, who say that it had little or no effect. But there's a reason why Thomas Carlyle called uh, economics the dismal science. Uh, I happen to think it's because he understood intuitively that it was not a science. Uh, and that it's not a science because you cannot uh, conduct a controlled experiment in economics the way you can in hard science, in real science. Um, and as a non-science, uh, uh, we have to turn back great theorists of free trade and of anti-protectionists like David Ricardo and Richard Coppin and understand uh, that they in the uh, early 19th century could not imagine a world where anybody uh, with money uh, and labor could (coughs) come into a power source anywhere in the world and make virtually anything. Uh, These uh, theorists to whom Professor Baglotti, Professor Irwin, and many of their colleagues claim with religious fervor, with, I, I might even say Marxist fervor because Ricardo had part of that great influence on Marx, uh, is what distorts the debate. friends can make the argument that their statistics or their studies are definitive because they're not scientific experiments. Uh, But since we're talking about protectionism versus free trade, essentially, uh, we can cite some spectacularly successful protectionist schemes. Mexico, poor believer, exploited Mexico in the 50s, 60s, and 70s, had a program called Import Substitution. A nice way of saying, or a technical way of saying, buy Mexico. And Mexico enjoyed the highest growth rates in its history uh, through the 50s, 60s, and 70s, uh, roughly averaging about 7%. Um, just to give you a more specific recent example, we still have a 25% tariff, import tariff on pickup trucks in the United States. That's why Toyota, until very recently, was still manufacturing uh, pickups. At not a coincidence that in 1945, the average U.S. tariff on dutiable imports was 28%. In the same year, manufacturing employment, which is the one that pays better than working at Walmart, manufacturing employment as a percentage of total U.S. employment was 35%. It's also likely not a coincidence that in 2008, the average tariff on dutiable imports was 4%. By the way, these are Professor Irwin's numbers. In the same year, manufacturing employment, as a percentage of t- total U.S. employment, was just under 10%. Now, again, these are anecdotal. Uh, this is anecdotal evidence. I don't pretend it's scientific. But in 1979, the year in which manufacturing employment peaked in the United States, the median weekly earnings for all U.S. workers was $2,009 or $700. the second quarter of 2009, uh, the median weekly earnings for U.S. workers uh, were $734, just slightly above. So, we can make the argument that a pro-free trade, lower tariff uh, economy has possibly contributed to the stagnation of wa- wages. I think we could say anecdotally that because manufacturing employment has declined, manufacturing jobs pay better than service jobs, generally speaking, this has contributed to the stagnation of wages. Now, this is not only happening in the uh, labor-intensive uh, traditional assembly line jobs. Uh, business, we just had a cover story called "America: America's Manufacturing Crisis, in which they talked about the crisis in high-tech manufacturing, uh, and the causes of this manufacturing in American high tech, quote, are numerous, complex, and a long time in the making. That's from Willie Shi, a Harvard Business School professor who used to work at IBM and used to run Eastern Kodak's Digital Consumer Products Unit. And then Business School goes on to paraphrase they say two decades of unconstrained outsourcing to Asia have hollowed out much of America's basic supplies, factory managers, private capital markets, meanwhile, are both the type for billions in factories and machinery. In the boom years from 1994 to 1999, when the economy surged 26%, U.S. manufacturing capacity went up by 44%. Okay? But from 2002 through 2007, when the U.S. expanded by 17%, <coughs> uh, manufacturing capacity rose a paltry 5%.
0: Rick McArthur, your time's up.
4: Okay. And I'll just say that it's no coincidence
0: Thank you. <laughs> our next debater, Susan Schwab, was to any of our international trading partners the face of U.S. trade, holding, as she did, the post of United States Trade Representative in the George W. Bush administration. That is a cabinet level position. She saw firsthand government thinking on trade, and she also influenced it, and now at the University of Maryland. She is here to argue that buy American hire American policies will backfire Susan Schwab
5: Thank you and thank you very much for uh, inviting us here today to uh, debate this very timely and very interesting and very complicated topic. I'm going to start by talking about hire American policies uh, which is part of this debate although no one's talked about it yet and I'm going to make quick work of that because, quite frankly, higher American restrictions are un-American. They are discriminatory. Uh, They reek of discrimination. They deny us the very diversity that has made the United States uh, as competitive as we are. Immigrants built this nation, and all you need to do is look at some of the companies that were founded by immigrants or children of immigrants that employ millions of Americans, including Google, Intel, eBay, Yahoo, Procter and Gamble, DuPont, and even U S steel. Buy American, buy American sounds like motherhood and apple pie. And unfortunately, buy American policies hurt America and hurt Americans. And we have history to point to, and we have the fact that the United States has to export to grow to point to, and the fact that the risk of retaliation is very, very real indeed. Let's start with history. Rick mentioned Smoot-Hawley. Well, guess why? In uh, the Smoot-Hawley Tariff Act, we raised our tariffs. It was perfectly legal under the international trading system at the time. Uh, it ultimately prolonged and deepened the Great Depression. No country, no country has ever reached or sustained a level of prosperity with economic isolationism as their policy, with trade protectionism as their policy, with binational policies. In fact, if you look at the 1990s, the countries that grew the fastest in the 1990s were countries that opened their markets, followed our lead, by the way, opening our markets, they grew three times faster than the countries that did not open their markets. 95% of the world's population, meaning the world's consumers live outside of our borders. Those are our customers. And if anyone thinks that we Americans have enough money to buy our way to recovery and to future competitiveness without exports, you've got another thing coming. Half of GDP growth, more than half of global GDP growth going forward over the next five years will come in the advanced developing countries. The bulk of global economic growth will come outside the United States. And if you're talking about stimulus packages, and quite frankly, Rick, this debate is about buy American policies, meaning the government telling us that it will not buy foreign goods, whether they are higher quality, whether they are better priced. 3.5 trillion dollars will be spent in the next several years by other countries on stimulus globally we need a piece of that and if you are a caterpillar worker in illinois if you work for ge if you work for any of the major manufacturers in the united states that sell to these countries you want a part of that action china is going to be spending the vast majority of the 550 billion dollars it's putting into stimulus on infrastructure that is business for american exporters india is going to be spending anywhere from 20 to 70 billion dollars uh, in roads construction. Now this issue, this canard, uh, that we don't manufacture anything is utterly absurd. Some of you may be surprised to know that the United States remains the single biggest manufacturer in the world bar none $1.7 trillion in manufactured outputs. China is a distant second at 1.3 trillion with Japan and Germany following up to the rear. One in six manufacturing jobs depends on exports. Six million U.S. jobs depend on manufactured goods exports. And if you look at U.S. economic growth, you discover that our manufacturing is in fact 20% of our GDP, not 9%. And it continues to grow our manufacturing output. Yes, our manufacturing employment because of productivity enhancements, technology has not kept pace. But if you look, for example, at a company like, look at a company like UPS that tells us for every 40 new packages that are shipped overseas, they hire a new American uh, worker. Those are high paying blue collar jobs, FedEx, exactly the same kind of statistics. And in many cases you're talking about, these are teamsters who are going to be uh, hired retaliation. Retaliation is not some myth. Retaliation is, re- is very, very real. Not only did we see it um, after Smoot-Hawley, we saw it after the Buy America language. It is not coincidence that within six weeks <coughs> of the Buy America legislation on the stimulus package moving through the United States Congress, it is not coincidence that the Chinese suddenly decided to let their provinces favor local companies. Because before that, A lot of Americans were starting to make a lot of money in those markets. We need access to those markets, and we need to be exporting to stay competitive. The folks who are telling us this isn't going to happen, they are ignoring the fact that the Canadians have already retaliated, the Chinese have already retaliated. The U.S. Chamber of Commerce estimates. That for every one percent of this global stimulus bonanza that is out there that we lose because of retaliation, we lose one hundred seventy five thousand jobs that eclipses the what eight nine thousand jobs that the Peterson Institute has told us could possibly be created in the steel industry in the United States, and Doug has already talked about how that has hurt. Um, other workers uh, in construction and so on. So let me close as follows. One, remind you there is zero evidence that bi national policies create more jobs than they sacrifice. And in fact, the data is very, very compelling the other way. Trade isolationism kills jobs, it does not create jobs. Buy Americans sounds good. And the issues that are being raised by the other side in many ways are legitimate issues, but Buy American policies and trade isolationism will not solve any one of the problems that they are describing. Buy American sounds good, good sound bite, bad policy hurts America, hurts American jobs.
0: And finally, speaking against the motion Buy American, Hire American Policies Will Backfire, Jeff Madrick, a business journalist and visiting professor at the Cooper Union. In the mid-1990s, he predicted the end of affluence with a bestseller that went by that very name. His latest book, The Case for Big Government, the title alone tells you much about his political take on the world as he argues now against the motion. Ladies and gentlemen, Jeff Madrick.
5: backfired
6: So this is too important, I'm afraid, to lead to economic theorists. I believe in regarding economics. I still do. Exchange is the key to economic growth. You have something I want. I want something. I have something you want. It leads to economic growth. But it is a narrow, idealistic theory in a very complex world. First, by America, is not illegal. China agreed to the very terms we are citing stimulus bill. That's number one. It is not illegal. Leave it, by the way of the tariffs on tires, Not illegal. They agree to it in the international agreement. Number two, the fiscal policy becomes necessarily ineffective when, we, when 20 to 30 to 40 percent of every dollar we spend to pump up our economy in a recessionary emergency. leaks overseas. We're not saying all we should not have Nobody on my team thinks we shouldn't have export growth, and even import growth. Nobody I know believes that. But we do want effective fiscal policy, and that's what we were talking about in the analysis. So, Will there be a trademark? war? I am tired of these scare tactics. I'm tired of playing the role. Wages are really low. I think as decent human beings, we should
0: all be it. Look what's happened. It hasn't gotten to them for the it hasn't gotten to them in nearly the amount it should. We've got to think much more broadly about this issue. Thank you. Thank you, Jeff Madrick. And that concludes opening statements in this debate. I'm John Donvan, your moderator for this Intelligence Squared U.S. debate. Our motion is Buy American, Higher American Policies Will Backfire. We have six panelists, three arguing for the motion and three against. Now, before the debate, we polled our live audience here uh, on where they stood on this debate, and I now have the results and will report them. And once again, the motion is Buy American, Higher American Policies Will Backfire. Before the debate, 57 percent of you agreed with the motion. 20% of you were against the motion, and 23% were undecided. We will poll you again at the end of the debate, and the side that has moved the most votes, that has changed the most minds, will be declared our winner. Now on to round two. In round two, the debaters speak directly to one another. They can question one another. They will also take questions from us, you and myself, and you in the audience. Uh, We'll have the opportunity in just a few minutes. We have uh, ushers with microphones, if you raise your hand, catch my attention, um, we will uh, get a microphone to you. I urge you again, uh, please to resist the temptation to, uh, to make long speeches. Um, and if you are a member of the press, we would prefer that you identify yourself. Doug Irwin of Dartmouth College, you are arguing for the motion that Buy American will backfire, you, you actually went as far as saying it has already backfired. I heard your opponent on the other side, Rick MacArthur, uh, and, and his colleagues argue repeatedly that buy American works and buy our own stuff works for lots of other countries who are doing it already, that's why they do it. Uh, Rick MacArthur cited Mexico, it has worked for Mexico. If it works for Mexico, why not make the argument that it works here as well?
1: Well, I wouldn't grant the premise that it worked for Mexico. In fact, what did that lead to? Huge debt crisis in 1982, huge collapse of the growing middle class, huge economic problems, which is one reason why they chose to Uh, economic openness uh, after the early 1980s. But actually, uh, Jeff Madrick raised an important point, too. There's been tremendous economic growth in India, tremendous economic growth in China. The biggest change in the globe has been happening in those regions where there's hundreds of millions of people moving into the middle class. They're able to do that because of trade openness. And yes... They're able to do that because
2: it's a mercantilist policy document. Oh they're, so they're, China they're they're, they're they're able they're able to do that because they subsidize their markets they're able to do that cuz they manipulate their currency they're able to do that because of the article that the CEO of Chinese CEO of uh, Suntech Power says that they're going to sell their products in America at lower than the cost of production and, and, issue, they, and it, they get away with it because... Excuse me, Leo. They, let me finish. I'm not finished. Well, they, I wasn't finished either. <laughs> well, I, I, I was cool I could interrupt you when you were wrong.
1: But.
0: I'm, I'm, I'm glad Leo Gerard of the uh, Steelworkers Union jumped in because one of the points that was raised by your opponents as you argue against this motion that buy American will backfire, they raised the argument that steel products from abroad may be better and may be cheaper and why should americans have to pay more for their steel if they can get it better and cheaper abroad
2: well first of all it's certainly not better and in some cases it is cheaper but i come back to the point that doug raised about the bay bridge uh, we have uh, had red lead in steel that we've had to ship back because we banned red lead in america 30 years ago because of its health hazards uh, can, so we, can you explain so what that
0: is for people who don't know the term very red, quickly
2: red lead is the, the most toxic form of lead it used to be put in pipes because it, it's malleable. you could maneuver it. We banned it because red lead is so dangerous, uh, and we pay a price for doing that. We pay a price for clean water. We pay a price for all those things in the kind of society we want. We found that China was shipping that We found that China was shipping steel pipes with radiation in it because they were doing it from melted pipes with radioactive material in it and shipping it. We found that as I said this the, and I, and I
0: but that, that's an argument that you can buy junky stuff abroad.
2: Well, that's but there. That's the argument that we have a set of laws and rules, and we're a rules-based and uh, trading system. But we're the only one right now playing by the rules. You know, and, and I, if we're a rules-based me, trading system, they ought to be playing by the rules.
0: Too. Let me hear for the side for, for the motion in response to that.
3: <clears throat> well, <clears throat> there's nothing which prevents you from applying safety standards, and we are doing that all the time. So the fact that some Chinese imports or any other imports, including our exports, get caught in the safety net doesn't mean that buy America is good. I mean, that's simply a non sequitur. But what it does
2: does is it adds cost because we have rules, and then you come to us and say, your costs are higher. Leo, leo leo leo
5: and i would note doug never got a chance to finish what he was saying <laughs> i'm
0: glad you're standing up there. There. <clears throat>
5: um no i mean the point is we can get off on this long tangent about chinese trade policies uh first of all that is not the issue at hand the resolution talks about bi-american policies high american higher american policies <laughs> will backfire they will backfire they have backfired that's what we're voting about but in terms of china I have taken on Chinese trade practices, and we've got legislation to do that. We took six cases against the Chinese in the Bush administration. We won or settled every one of those cases, got rid of illegal Chinese subsidies. Um, We managed to get the markets open where they were artificially closing them. There are, I'm sorry, there are statutes for anti-dumping. There are statutes for countervailing duties. There are lots and lots of statutes by American legislation does not resolve any single one of the issues. Excuse me. The problem with that is dumping Dumping goes
6: on, subsidies go on. And this recession, by all reports I've heard, China is really pushing out the exports as, as, and some of the practices are open. This is part of what I mean. This is what I'm talking about, about this oversimplification. And, and, And I have great respect for Jagdish, who I consider a friend, but to say that we can handle these issues in the international labor organization or through agreements we make with China, disregarding the reality of the world. I am, I, we're not even close to fighting a trade war. it's not even close. China needs us. We need them, but we've got to start dealing with the reality of what's happened to wages in America. And Doug. Things have become extremely imbalanced in this world you're describing of China. Let's let Doug Irwin in now. Extremely that's imbalanced. That's great. Doug Irwin of Dartmouth College.
1: I'm actually one of the few, uh, maybe trade economists, that believes the trade deficit has become a problem. So the question is how do you deal with it? Buy America will not deal with it. It's not the right approach. Why do we have a huge trade deficit with China? What, is the, what do we do with our dollars in the United States? 70% of US GDP is consumption. 70%. What is the share of consumption in China? Thirty percent. They are a high savings country. We are a low savings country. We are a high consumption country. They are a low consumption country. That is the ultimate source of yeah, the trade. I mean, you know, it's you know, not unfair trade practices. It's not all this other stuff. You know, one we way to get to sa- save more as a country, and China has to consume I'd, I'd, more. I'd, you know, and but Doug is see, also. If I'm in bringing your colleagues, we haven't heard from.
0: Well, you as long know, as, as you Doug give me a problem. chance no, for sorry, a couple right, of right,
4: Well, I never got to, I I ran out of time, so I wasn't able to make my my main argument, which is what kind of, uh, which has to do with what kind of country you want to live in. Obviously, uh, using tariffs and buy American provisions are artificial uh, methods that you install in an economy to, we hope, maintain wages at a a relatively high level so we can uh, run a civilized society. We haven't had one exchange yet about the exploitation of cheap labor in China or Mexico. And when I talk about, uh, when I have arguments with my friends on the, uh, in the economics departments of these various universities, I have to ask myself if they've ever met a factory worker, have they ever talked to a steel worker or to an auto worker or to an electrical worker who's lost their job uh, because the United States has been pursuing pro buy foreign uh, policies for the last uh, 15 years. That's what we have right now with NAFTA and the permanent normal trade relations with China. These are as professor Bhagwati will be the first to acknowledge preferential, uh, trade agreements, not free trade agreements. And something has to be done on our side to compensate for these tremendous advantages given to foreign manufacturers. Yes. Some of it's low end manufacturing, but not all of it is low end manufacturing. And in order to uh, redress this tremendous trade imbalance, there are various methods at our disposal, tariffs buy American provisions, et cetera, et cetera. But to, to go on talking as if there is uh, a free trade system in place that's being threatened is preposterous. If you look at uh, <coughs> NAFTA and PNTR, they're much closer. And this is a, a corporate lawyer who first explained it to me when I explained to him how the, how the labor market works between the United States and Mexico, the United States and China. It's more like a labor racketeering agreement. Uh, a cons- that is a conspiracy to fix the price of labor as low as possible, certainly to benefit certain uh, shareholders and certain American corporations, but not to benefit American workers or to defend Rick, what look, we used to call the American way of life. I, I if you want in, to keep driving I, wages down, yes, let's keep uh, pursuing a non-buy American policy. And let's keep outsourcing. So
0: so this critique seems to say to the side arguing for the motion that free trade, as you describe it, is a farce.
5: Well, let let us note again, you're (coughs) going to come back and remind everyone what this debate is actually supposed to be about: buy American, (coughs) hire American. But the other side is meandering. I want to go in that direction and talk about trade agreements because what what Rick has been saying about trade agreements just isn't borne out by the facts. If you look at the free trade agreements and forgive me jagdesh i know you hate free trade agreements if you look at the agreements that we've negotiated you find that us exports to our trade agreement partners have gone up 40 percent faster. They are fake than our
4: exports. 40 percent madam. faster.
5: <laughs> fake exports? Go talk to GE and <laughs> Caterpillar uh, Jeffing, and UPS. Susan, let me point of order. Thought. you got to really. Let me finish the really thought. You can't say this. I'll let you
4: respond utter nonsense. I'll let you respond. Let me just finish. Okay.
5: I can say it because it is a fact. And in fact, if you just look at the trade agreements that we negotiated during the Bush administration, U.S. exports have gone up 80 percent faster to those countries than the rest of the world. NAFTA. NAFTA was raised. This, I know this debate's not about NAFTA, but, and I didn't negotiate NAFTA. NAFTA went through during the Clinton administration. But you know what? If you look at the statistics in the 10 years before NAFTA and the 10 years after, you discover the 10 years after NAFTA passed, U.S. unemployment was lower. U.S. employment was higher. U.S. economic growth was higher after NAFTA. So all of this, these scare tactics, um, excuse me, do not
0: all right your 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 opponents are conferring and they want to speak i first want to get the process of questions from the audience and i will come to that you on that point before we go to the questions i just want to get get it moving uh if you raise your hand uh, i'd like to move a microphone over to you um if you go up the aisle gentleman in the blue shirt you will be next i want to give you a chance to respond to what susan schwab just said. oh
4: very quickly the you've
0: heard the you've
4: heard the expression industrial tourism i'm sure the the, the, the surge in exports of the United States to Mexico are fake exports. It's us sending components, uh, to Mexico for assembly. And we're counting those as exports and they come right back into the United States for sales. Uh, we're even at the point now where we're, we're sending oranges to Mexico to be packed and then shipped back into the United States. We're calling those exports. They're fake exports. They're not, there's no added value to speak of in those exports. And the people who used to do those assembly jobs, those relatively low paid assembly jobs have lost their jobs. More than half a million, probably a million, uh, if we count honestly, uh, since NAFTA was passed. And this is, this is a government statistic. Uh, so instead of having somebody making $10 an hour or $11 an hour packing, uh, oranges in Florida, it's now being packed for $1.30 an hour in Mexico. We're counting
2: that as an export when it's not an export. Leo here. it's a department. phony export. Leo Girardi, the steel worker. A couple of quick points. And, and I could give Susan the uh, the point that our exports have gone up, but our imports more than doubled. So we, when we signed, we do NAFTA. When we signed NAFTA, we had a slight trade surplus with Mexico. Ten years after NAFTA, we've had record trade deficit year after year with Mexico. When we did PNTR trade with China was relatively in balance, only a couple of hundred millions million dollars either way. We're now setting record trade uh, deficit with China. China's trade deficit year over year is 70% of our overall trade deficit. Today we but have let, a manufactured... Let me finish. Let finish. Let finish. Let finish. And, and, and the one thing that we were told, we need to get trained for these high-tech computer jobs. Well, you know what? We've now got a deficit in advanced technology products. So the high-end jobs that we were told we would train for are gone.
5: National Association of Manufacturers has shown us the, you know, the that U.S. The US, the U.S. trade balance with our FTA partners is now in surplus oh, that's in manufactured craziness. in manufactured goods. Well, uh, if you look, if you Su- look, at, I'm, I'm sorry. Yeah, just I'm going to stop this yeah, because we, we have a dispute that's
0: over that's the, so the so facts at this point that can't be but settled they, they, here. They love I want cheap to go labor. to the gentleman. They love cheap labor. In <laughs> gentlemen in the blue jacket, <laughs> 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 it, it can, it can on be our motion that higher American, buy American, fires. Apologies will backfire. And please stand up, sir. Trade
2: surplus. up with a trade deficit.
6: Mr. Gerard. Um, as a Colombian manufacturer, uh, I would be on the side of the protectionist hundred percent because if not, would be run out of business. Uh, the fact is that one of the US manufacturers with one percent of its yearly production would run us out of the whole market of the whole Colombian market. So we
4: think that it's dangerous
6: for us, and uh, we think that the policy of subsidies does exist in the United States of America, which it doesn't in Colombia, and as such, I should be obtained. To be intellectually
0: honest, however... Sir, I need you to get to a question, please. With respect.
3: Just, just very that was... I,
0: I, I, I really need you to get to the question, because I gave you briefly. I
3: have no doubt that it's good for our country
6: to sign a future agreement. So the question to... Uh, Mrs. Uh,
4: trade or, I'm sorry,
6: is why, if I think you believe uh, what I'm saying is true, why has it not been signed?
5: You want to answer that? Yes. Um, the Columbia-U.S. free trade agreement was uh, signed over two years ago, three close to three years ago now. It would benefit both countries. The Independent International Trade Commission has told us that U.S. exports would go up to Colombia. Colombia's exports would go up to the United States. Uh, In fact, because Colombia has preferential access to the U.S. market now, U.S. exports would go up to Colombia even faster than um, Colombia's exports to the United States. But Colombia would derive new foreign direct investment. We made all of these arguments on Capitol Hill. The Democratic leadership, I uh, reached an agreement with the Democratic leadership in 2007 to add um, special labor and environmental protections to that agreement after it had been signed and was very grateful that the government of Columbia was willing to incorporate that in the agreement. And uh, lo and behold, the Democratic leadership and the Congress decided they just didn't want to move the legislation. And a legislative process that has worked for the United States since 1974 was turned on its head when the speaker of the house refused to allow a vote on the Columbia free trade agreement. When we knew the votes were there in the house and in the Senate to pass it. In two sentences, what's the
0: lesson related to our motion tonight? uh,
5: Well, this uh, perhaps none. well, I mean, the, the actually, there is. No, is that is
1: a, they're right? There is free trade in the, the world <clears throat> because Colombia has very high tariffs against our goods, and we allow them duty-free access to our market. So it's very much unfair, and the F- Colombia FTA would have even that, leveled that playing field.
5: I, I can answer that question I'm now. Not, Sorry, now that I've now that I've thought about it, when you, in terms of Buy America, here we're talking about Buy America this, Buy America that. Our trading partners, Canada, Europe, are negotiating free trade agreements with Colombia so that they can have preferential access and lock our guys out. That's what's you happening.
4: Question you know, from I, the- I, I just have
6: to cut in here because I, I'd love to hear Jagdish <laughs> on bilateral trade agreements. The, I, and, and this may be a little too theoretical, but bilateral trade agreements are anathema to true free trade theorists for the most part. They do not, they, it's not about comparative advantage. It's about political bullying and political favoritism and all the FTAs are going to do is exactly what Susan said they're going to do. They're going to bring in comp- on competitive FTAs, and we're going to have a, tr- a trade war in that sense. And I, I have the sense that John, John, I, 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 John I just want
2: to go back to the point that I was cut off making a minute ago. <laughs> that, that, wow. that when Susan made the point that uh, all of the trading agreements that we've negotiated are all in surplus. No, 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 I can't make. I, I can't do the math. That's not what we're. We're in. We're in fact running a six and a half trillion dollar accumulated trade debt since 1994. We've been setting record trade deficits year after year, and including in the last four years, a trade deficit in advanced technology products. When we lose the industrial base of America, we lose the creativity and the innovation and the engineering and all of the stuff that takes us to the next level and right now we're hollowed out to the point where Jeff Immelt, that Susan referred to at GE, is uh, now publicly said that we've gone too far with this, we've outsourced too much and we've got to go back and rebuild the manufacturing base and America needs an industrial strategy that will favor America. Jeff isn't um, a left wing trade unionist by any stretch of the imagination. He he i have got to go up to the American, gentleman in the
0: um, middle and I really want to hear a question. <laughs> For the motion that Buy American will backfire. Sorry?
4: Hi. Uh, I was wondering if you're okay with the fact that the overwhelming majority of our economy is driven by consumerism. If you're not okay with that, then wouldn't it be a uh, plus for us to then instill some sort of Buy American, Higher American policy? If that's no, then wouldn't that lead to an economy that's more reliant on consumerism as it already is overwhelmingly?
0: I'm going to stop you there because I want it to be one question, and you actually got several clauses in there. I'm, I'm going to stop you, sir. Jagdish, can you take that question, please? Go ahead. Um, Go ahead. Go ahead.
3: Is somebody talking? I'm, I'm asking him. To, <laughs> I don't mean Maybe to be rude. I just want question. to move it along, and
0: it was multi-part, and it's too complicated. Ahead.
5: Yeah.
3: I mean, I... I couldn't quite get at what exactly the, he was driving at. But let me, uh, let me just get back very quickly to Jeff Madrick's question. <laughs> uh, uh, about free trade agreements, I totally disagree with what Susan said. I don't know whether it's kosher to disagree. <laughs> but I mean, the preferential trade agreements are between us as a major power with l- little guys in different parts of the world, relatively, except for South Korea. And if you look at any Australia, free trade agreement, uh, it consists it's about that big. It consists of all kinds of atrocities being perpetrated on the smaller countries. Uh, and I think it's, 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 it pretends to be a trade agreement, but it's actually a trade, a non-trade agreement. And I, I think we need to get away from these altogether and get back to the multilateral trading system. I Another question we have from
0: a, the audience. It, we, we, we um, we gentleman in have a white a, shirt, please. Right behind
2: you. I'll try to keep this short. Um, I I believe that America is a capitalist country, and capitalism
1: rewards people who are more efficient, and people who can give you more for
2: less. So if these foreign countries can produce SEAL, like PASO and Korea can produce SEAL, better than US SEAL or Nucor can, then why are we going to reward mediocrity? Why are we going to reward the inefficiency of the American
1: system
6: when we can get, when we should give
2: incentives to the
0: American companies to become as efficient as this one. Let's give that question to Leo Girard of the Steelworkers.
2: The problem with that question is it's, it's living in facts that were probably from the 1970s and early 80s. And, and the fact is, the, well, by, by, the t- by, the time, by the time we got to the economic collapse of last fall, last year, American steel was the cheapest of any major industrial country. And American steel sold in America was cheaper than Chinese steel sold in China. And the reason for that is that China doesn't have sufficient raw material. But China went, think about this, if we talk about a, a sort of a level playing field. From 2003, roughly late 2002, to 2007, China went from being able to produce 150 million tons of steel to 500 million tons of steel in in a traditional system using traditional finance. They could have never generated enough profits and they could have never accessed enough capital markets to make that kind of investment, to do that to their industry in a period of roughly five years. That was done because they got subsidies, they got cheap money, they got free land, they got no enforcement, they got uh, free transportation. Mm -hmm. They got export subsidies when they exported stuff to us. They got the money back and they generated that. And it's a mercantile system. I'm not angry at China. I would be in I'm favor. I'm not angry at China. I, they I, decided to do that so they could grow would, their steel industry. We decided to punish our steel industry and reward those that take jobs offshore with giving them tax breaks.
0: Did you, but, okay, the side for the motion wants to respond but, to that.
3: But we, we pay a lot of subsidies too, usually at the Ladi. state and local level. They add up to huge amounts. And People like Bloomberg even announced with great glee that we managed to, to attract industry you know, to, to, to New York, and all the governors compete for it also. So I think actually we, we don't have clean hands either. So you know, for us to say but others are subsidizing and we are not doesn't make yeah, any he sense. A question. I don't
2: think we ought to subsidize each
3: other at all. Okay, uh, can I, want, I just I, ask, I, well, what,
2: what do you mean
4: uh, uh, capitalism is... Uh, who told you capitalism is efficient? What you, what you, I'd like to hear. I'd like to hear him. Make, could you pretend you're defending your doctoral thesis, and I'd be happy to argue that capitalism can be enormously inefficient. It can tend towards monopoly. It can tend towards monopolistic practices. We've just been thro- through a supposed. Uh, I agree. Boom. I agree, John. It's a wonderful thesis question, but we all I mean,
0: Sarah. So, let's let's move on to the woman and in what the front cost? row. What As you, John, yeah, please. Thanks. As you rise, I want to remind you that we're. Uh, We're in the Q&A section of our (laughs) Intelligence Square debate. I'm John Donovan, your moderator. (laughs) The motion is that higher American, buy american policies will backfire. Ma'am, your question, please. But I, I, the
2: question I, is, you, you will, know, you're, you're not just talking about Buy American, Buy Yeah, American. I'm intrigued.
6: You, you seem to think that, uh, that America, the implication of what you're saying is that the credit crisis was somehow caused by people who don't believe in market processes. The credit crisis was caused, I think most people believe, or at least in large part, uh, was caused because of lack of government uh, intervention and because the, of the inefficiencies and unfairness of unfettered, mark- free markets. The free trade policy. You're off the topic. I'm not off the uh, topic. That's what she just asked. Um, can I? Can I just? Uh, Jeff, you can take it. Can take I, it. Uh, I believe you're wrong, sir, and I'm going to continue. Okay. Uh, the, Jeff- the point is that we. America is responsible for much of that credit crisis because it believed in free market theory. Now, free trade theory is a precise analogy to efficient market financial theory. It argues that all these markets in the world work very efficiently, like this fellow was saying. If Korea makes something efficiently, why shouldn't we reward them? Well, their wages are very low, but are they making something, are there more incentives? Should we have an incentive battle so, are we, do we argue that th- trade is good? I think all three of us argue that trade is good. Do we argue that it's become unbalanced, that this is tipped over far too much, that the evidence of wages in America doing so poorly is clear? That's what I would... Can
3: I, can I get back to the question? Please
0: do.
3: <laughs> Fair enough, Careful. <laughs> Let me just say that I'm myself an immigrant, okay? Uh, I don't think I've done much harm to this country. Uh, (laughs) uh, I think, Mr. Gerard, I read your description that you were a Canadian. That you were a Canadian, and I maybe you've done harm to this country, but I I think you should defend it yourself. But I do think that this country, as Susan, you know, eloquently pointed out, has done enormously well as a result of immigration. And I think to to indulge in, you know, hiring. Aliens last and firing them first—the sort of movements which are going on—are not are, are extremely un-American and also extremely inefficient. We've really prospered on the I mean, no, we, no. All right, Leo, Leo, Leo Gerard, let's take that I, on. I,
2: I, don't, I don't know where this argument came from. That I, I, I don't know. I don't know anyone who's against immigration. What, 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 what I am against, what I am against, is when uh, Microsoft will want to bring in engineers from India that will work for $12,000 while they're laying off computer engineers that were getting paid $60,000 well, and, and want to use the visa system to do that. I don't, um, think, I don't think that that's right. Now I'm all for obviously, as you are, yeah. I'm all for the ability to come here and, and work within the system at the system that is, but don't use me to come in and drive down wages of computer engineers or anyone else. Yeah, That's but let, the let, let
3: me let me just explain one thing in, in, in contradiction. And, and by the uh, way, I haven't done with, anything wrong. I haven't been damaged. <laughs> I, I'm glad you, you say that. that. Uh, <laughs> I hope you're able to persuade others about in this audience. But uh, when Intel, Bill Gates, etc., go out and get people from, say, India the vast majority of those people are fantastically able. They're trained at the best institutions in the country. So we're going out and looking for enormous talent.
2: Absolutely, we should pay them. I'm a professor,
3: as you know, and in in every class there's a tale of about 30% who really should never have been admitted but somehow managed to get in. (laughs) Uh, Everywhere. I've taught at uh, MIT, I've taught at Columbia, everywhere it's the same, but I would just say one thing which is that there are people who could be employed, but who are kind of at the bottom end. They're not really comparable to the kinds of people we're going out and getting. And so I think the nation prospers by having those people come in, create jobs, because it's not a given number of jobs that we are talking about. And I think the other people will find their own way at job, if, in jobs which are... More appropriate to their qualifications. That,
0: okay, take me, another question me, from the gentleman who's standing with the microphone. Okay. Um, let's simulate that
2: the effect of impeding lower cost goods is higher prices for goods, the tires, pickup trucks, etc. In fact, that is the purpose of protectionist policies on their face is to prop up prices, in turn, prop up wages. What is the, and this is for the
0: I just want to point out, you're addressing your question to the team arguing against the motion that Buy American will backfire. That's,
2: that's what is the ethical justification
0: for transferring money from the broad American population to workers in specific industries, which is, again, unarguably the cost
2: of, uh, effect of achieving more cost? The, pro- the, problem, the problem with your question, I'll, I'll, keep, I'll, I'll keep it short so that the others can get a chance. This
0: is Leo Gerard speaking. And
2: Leo Gerard, the problem with your question is you don't get to the point of how did we so call end up with lower costs? If we end up, instead of paying a living wage, we're paying less than a living wage. If we're giving cheap money and extra subsidy, if we're giving tax dollars to export credits when they export, if we're not enforcing safety standards, if we're not enforcing environmental standards, you could send me anywhere and give me those rules and I can j- develop the cheapest product. But what's the moral right? And, and in, in this case, what we've been doing, what we are doing today, is we're taking American dollars and we're sending them to, we spent a lot of time on China, but it could be India, it could be Mexico, it could be somewhere else. We're taking those American dollars and we're sending them over there. When they've cheated and haven't played by the rules in a rules-based trading system that the three of us are arguing for, and they're sending us back their products, and their products are knocking our workers out of work. There's a moral wrong being done there, but it's not by taxpayer dollars.
6: That is the same kind of argument that was used against labor unionization
2: throughout American
6: economic history. What is the ethical argument for uh, raising wages above some supposed, and I would argue hypothetical, market rate of wages. The fact is the assumption behind, I see you smiling there, the assumption, behind your, the, the assumption behind your comment is that these markets work very well, reflect costs, the people without labor unions, it's, uh, to continue with that analogy, will always get what they're worth and everybody will do well. That's just not, unfortunately, the way it works. It works maybe in your classroom, but it doesn't work in the real can world. I, I, and, and, and that concludes history. round two of our debate.
0: <laughs> Robert Rosenkrantz, I, I just want to say you move this thing downtown, and, and it really gets spicy. <laughs> uh, we're, we're now in the home stretch, and in a very uh, short time, you, the audience, will be deciding who has won this debate. But I want to recall that at the beginning, we asked you whether you agreed or disagreed with our motion that by American higher American policies will backfire. At the beginning, 57% of you agreed with the motion, 20% disagreed, and 23% were undecided. In just a few minutes, we'll be asking you for a final time and your response is going to determine the winner. But first, we want to start round three closing statements. In this case, two minutes each for each speaker. Each speaker has a short summary statement. It's their last Chance to change your minds. Our motion once again is: Buy American, hire American policies will backfire. And speaking against our motion and summing up, Leo Girard, International President of the United Steelworkers. Leo.
2: My, my, point is, my point will be very brief. That uh, during the period of time that we've adopted the philosophy that the other side is is defending, and, and you can't defend that without talking about the issues trade overall. and During the period of time that we've entered into that uh, blind drive to that kind of a trade and investment ideology in manufacturing, America has gone from being the world's largest creditor nation to the world's largest debtor nation. Wages of average Americans have stagnated and fallen, that the industrial strength of America has gone from being sapped uh, at 28% at one time, now down to 9%. We've had an accumulated trade debt that no one on the other side has tried to defend of $6.5 trillion. Some of you in the room may know what a billion is. How many of you know what a trillion is? Think about this, a billion seconds ago was roughly the 19, late 1950s. A billion minutes ago, Christ was on Earth. A billion hours ago, we lived in caves, and in the period since 1994, we've accumulated a six and a half trillion dollar trade debt. We've hollowed out our economy to the point now where you've got the Chinese will probably raise at the G20 whether or not we should move to another form of currency because the American dollar is not sustainable. I think that the way we do that is we develop a strategy that's going to rebuild the American industrial base and we have to do that by focusing not just on subsidies but innovation, creativity and demanding that our trading partners level the playing field and we're not going to be able to win against unfair trade and we shouldn't pretend
0: Leo Jard, your time is up. Thank you very much. Summarizing for the motion, Buy American, higher American policies will backfire. Here's Douglas Irwin, professor of economics at Dartmouth College.
1: Well, first of all, just in terms of the proposition uh, before the House, um, I think they have backfired. I think that's demonstrable. I think you have no choice but to vote affirmative. But let me make some major concessions to the other side. I think what you're hearing is things we've heard in the 1980s. We've actually even heard them in the 1950s and beforehand. And that is that economic change is very hard and very painful and we should do something to address that. I happen to think that the remedies they're suggesting are wrong, will backfire, and actually don't really address the underlying problem. We've talked about the declining share of workers in manufacturing. Manufacturing is a victim of its own success. A century ago, a third of the workforce in the United States was in agriculture. Now it's about 2%. Why? Because the productivity of the American farmers is absolutely astronomical. The same thing has happened with American factories. They're churning out stuff, and we just need fewer workers. They're much more capital intensive. It's productivity. Um, think about Manchester, New Hampshire. I'm from New Hampshire. Um, if you've ever been visit Manchester, a lovely city, huge brick building, um, over a mile long, former textile mill. Not a single shoe, not a single textile made there anymore. It's a thriving city. It wasn't always thriving, it had went through some very difficult times, but it made that change. It had to. The jobs actually were stolen by the South, not by a foreign country, and then they left for the South uh, for other countries. Um, uh, Jeff Madrick said, you know, I'm tired of hearing about uh, people saying trade uh, doesn't, you don't lose jobs. Actually, I'd like, uh, I'll give you a copy of my book, because in uh, one of the chapters, I say, first thing, trade destroys jobs. Trade also creates jobs, but there's no denying that trade destroys jobs in certain import competing industries, but creates jobs elsewhere. The question is the balance. Guess what? Technology destroys jobs. What's happened to all the bank tellers? What's happened to all the secretaries? Do we stop technology? No, we have to adjust to it and become a better society for it. I do believe the trade deficit is a problem, but it's not mercantilism of China or what have you. China is very poor, but their savings rate, what was the personal savings rate in the United States? Douglas Erwin, your time is up. But they can save in China.
0: Thank you. Summarizing against the motion that buy American, hire American policies will backfire, John R. MacArthur, known as Rick MacArthur, president and publisher of Harper's Magazine. Uh,
4: Very quickly, uh, there are lots of anecdotal examples of deautomation in outsourcing, by the way, Professor Irwin, where uh, products that used to be made on automated assembly lines in the United States are now being made by hand in Mexico and China. But I'll put that aside and just say that I finally get to my main point and get away from the statistics and point out to you that Japan and China uh, don't believe in free trade any more than I do. And if we don't start buying American soon or doing something, uh, installing some kind of compensatory uh, uh, tariffs by American uh, provisions, and I'll acknowledge to the other side that the tariff, uh, such as it is, has been corruptly applied throughout the decades and the centuries that we've had it. Uh, But generally speaking, there has to be some kind of compensation for American policy that has favored uh, the production of things that used to be made here by cheap labor in foreign countries where you cannot organize a union and you have no environmental protection agency. But even if you don't feel an ethical obligation to your fellow citizens or to the poor workers working for 30 cents an hour in uh, in, uh, China or a dollar 25 an hour in Mexico, even if you have no concern, ethical concern about them. Uh, I urge you to, uh, uh, come over to our side, vote for our side out of enlightened self-interest, because if we don't, if we don't do something to compensate for these pro cheap labor pro outsourcing policies we've been pursuing for the last, uh, uh 20 years, particularly, but really <laughs> since the war, uh, we're going to end up with a a political vacuum that will be filled, not by a nice civilized businessman like Ross Perot, but by a very ugly right-wing populist. It's already brewing in the United States. And if you don't hurry up and do something about it, uh, there won't be any discussion about free trade anymore. There's gonna be only discussion about how to shut the doors to immigration and how to keep the uh, labor unions from organizing uh, 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 immigrants, for example. Thank thank you, John MacArthur. (laughs) (laughs)
2: <laughs>
0: <laughs> Summarizing for the motion in this Intelligence Squared debate where their motion is Buy American, Higher American Policies Will Backfire, at Jagdish Bhagwati, University Professor of Economics and Law at Columbia University.
3: Um, let me first focus on Buy American uh, provisions because that's really what the motion is about. Uh, and there I, I would just simply say that while immediately you, you see that you're saving some jobs, you're losing many more because of the downstream effects, retaliation effects, diffusion of uh, protectionism effects. By the time you've added it up, you're losing far more than you're gaining. Uh, And I think it is being penny wise and pound foolish. And that's the fundamental point we need to understand. The second point relates to the more general issue of protectionism, which has come up from the other side. Uh, and I think certainly Mr. Girard, and I think to some extent the other uh, you know, people on the other side, have been focusing on the fear that trade is actually putting downward pressure on the wages of our workers. As a Democrat, I'm certainly concerned about it, and I think most people are concerned about it. I mean, these are the bottom 30% of, of our society, and we ought to worry about them. The only question is whether protectionism is the answer. And I think what is going on basically is that massive technological change is going on uh, and I think we need to worry about that and how to adapt to that. And if we don't do that, we're not going to get an appropriate answer to the problem. You take acute technical change going on on assembly lines, entire assembly lines are wiped out. If you go and see, you know, take your child to see Charlie Chaplin's Modern Times and they say, you know, where he goes berserk on the assembly line and you say, "Can can you take me to to see an assembly line. Well, you can, but you won't see Charlie Chaplin there. Uh, you will see five people in a cage up there. So what has happened is that large numbers of jobs have been lost and you're getting you know, more uh, volatility as a result for the unskilled workers. And we have to really rethink the whole issue of how we accommodate the institutional change to be able to support workers. But protectionism is not the answer.
0: Thank you very much. Summarizing his position against our motion, Jeff Madrick, senior fellow at the Schwartz Center for economic policy analysis at the new school. Jeff Madrick.
6: Thank you. The first narrow motion by American high, uh, higher American will have, uh, will not have a reverse impact. It's a rather small issue. What it will do is allow our stimulus to work effectively. That is our first priority. The way it's now structured, our stimulus to get ourselves out of this recession will leak badly overseas. That's the principal issue. Uh, uh, The opposition has talked about how it will inevitably cost jobs that you simple people over there think it will save jobs in the near term, but if you thought about it for a second or two, you'd realize there are second, third, and fourth order effects. The fact is that both theory, both theory And most empirical studies suggest that more jobs are lost than the opposition is acknowledging. In fact, on balance, the theory says a significant portion of jobs or wages are lost in this kind of situation (coughs) and balance the whole wage package may be higher, but the distribution of those wages changes. Now, free market theory (coughs) is very compelling. It is a simple and pretty ideology. For the most part, the opposition has put forward this theory. And I think, judging by some of the questions, many of you believe it out there, that efficient markets exist. I'm a little surprised I hear so much out there, given the financial crisis, because we were told time and again that bonuses made sense, that securitization made sense, that even some people like Alan Greenspan and to some degree Ben Bernanke told us high house prices make sense. They resorted to the same kind of thinking that is behind this idea that we just let markets work and sort it out. The way to respond to change is through active government working with business, active incentives, and this kind of argument has diminished our ability to do that in America. Thank you, Jeff Madrid. And finally, speaking for
0: the motion, Buy American, Higher American Policies Will Backfire. Here is Susan Schwab, former U.S. Trade Representative.
5: The other side has sort of been bobbing and weaving about the topic on the debate, so I'm, I'm forced to address just a couple of issues here. On the ethics of open trade, the fact that there have been 600 million people brought out of poverty in China and India, in part because they have opened their markets uh, over the last two decades, I think is a very strong positive note how important trade can be and their potential new customers of ours. We remain the single largest manufacturer in the world. We want to be selling those turbines, those earth movers, uh, the transportation equipment, the aircraft it's very, very important. And we care as much about U.S. jobs as the other side. However, not a single solitary one of the arguments that they have made would create a single job. And in fact, if you look at the proposition here, the proposition here would destroy, by American, higher American policies we have been able to show without question, would destroy more jobs than it would create. It sounds patriotic in fact, by American, hire American policies hurt America, hurt Americans. There is zero evidence of any country ever using economic isolationism and binational policies to achieve and sustain economic development. Someone mentioned Japan. I remember 20 years ago, 30 years ago, these same folks were telling us the Japanese were going to wipe out all our manufacturing. We are still by far the largest manufacturer in the world. We are the largest exporter in the world. There are millions of U.S. jobs that depend on these exports, and that includes uh, exports that we can and should and will be making uh, to foreign countries that have stimulus packages. Clearly, the vote has to be on which side uh, has. Convinced you that the policies will create more jobs uh, and more opportunities for Americans. Clearly, that is a vote in the alternative because Buy American policies have and have already failed.
0: Thank you, Susan Schwab. <laughs> and that concludes the debating portion of our program. It is now time to learn who has won this debate. We want to ask you to take out your cell phones again and turn them on briefly. It works the same way as before. You text to uh, the number 99503. For the motion, you vote IQ yes. If you are against the motion, you vote IQ no. If you remain undecided or became undecided, you vote IQ undecided. And uh, I'll give you a couple of minutes because I hear the phone's just starting up. The instructions are clear to everyone, I assume. Yeah. (laughs) Is anyone not done? All right, a lot of people still, okay. What's happening? It says you already voted. Is anyone else having that problem that is coming back to you that you voted already? Sorry? Is this a call back? Leave a message?
2: Tell my wife I'm on my way home. Yeah.
0: All right. And if you can shut your cell phones down again. To the, to the individuals, and I think it's just a few for whom it's, uh, there's, it's glitching, we apologize. We will smooth it out. Okay, so Dana, I'm assuming we're locking it out. Okay, voting is over. So we're gonna have the vote in just a, a moment, but before we do so, first of all, um, once again, this was a very zesty conversation. I really wanna thank both, both of our panelists. Um, looking, looking forward as season four continues, uh, I, I want to point out that our next debate will be next month, Tuesday, October 6th. The motion will be America cannot and will not succeed in Afghanistan and Pakistan. Uh, we are still booking this, and here's who we have booked so far, panelists for the motion, our retired U.S. military intelligence and Army Special Forces officer, Patrick Lang and Ralph Peters, a retired Army officer and author against against the motion, are president of the New America Foundation and author of the Bin Ladens, Steve Cole, and he is one of the authors of the U.S. Army's counterinsurgency field manual, uh, manual, retired officer and president of the Center for a New American Century, John Nagy, and former assistant secretary of defense for Asia, James Shin. All of our debates will continue to be heard on more than 190 NPR stations across the country. And to that point, uh, when I announced the final results, uh, the the second vote results, I'm gonna raise my hand and ask you to applause to give us a rousing conclusion to our radio broadcast. But we are also on television throughout this season on Bloomberg television. You can watch all of the fall debates on Bloomberg and read about them also with our other partner, Newsweek. Uh, the results of this debate and the content of the debate will be summarized and analyzed in the next edition of Newsweek. Books by tonight's panelists and DVDs of past debates are on sale in the lobby, but Jeff gets a free one from Doug, right?
2: <laughs>
0: That'd be unfair.
6: <laughs> I should have read it before.
0: All right, Is everybody settled down? And I have the results in and our concluding numbers are these. When You came in and voted beforehand. 57% of you were for the motion. 20% of you were against, and 73% were undecided. After the debate, 72% are for, 14% against, 14% undecided. The side arguing for the motion wins. Congratulations to that team. Thank you for me, John Donvan, for Intelligence Squared US.